gonna stand over here if that's okay. I know that Paul that's in the middle is a center of the word of God in the church, but I feel like I'll be outside if I'm standing over there with everybody else over here. Okay, I'll speak louder. I'm gonna stand over here, is that okay? Okay. This morning we're going to start a sermon series through the book of Galatians titled Back to Basics. Uh, If you don't understand what's going on in the book of Galatians, um, the fight for the gospel is central to what Paul is writing for, or what Paul is writing about. Um, The Galatian church was a young church. Um, I believe it was started on Paul's first missionary journey, which we read about in Acts 13 and 14. I believe Acts 15 is plays into Galatians as well. Um, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is central to the book of Galatians. Martin Luther has described the just that justification by faith alone is the article by which the church stands or falls. Basically, he means if we get the gospel wrong, if we don't understand where our justification with God comes from, We have missed the gospel and are not a gospel-believing, gospel-preaching church. So adamant, in fact, is Paul that he spends half of chapter 2, all of chapter 3 and 4, and half of chapter 5 on this one issue. Basically, there's a group of Judaizers that were coming into Galatians that came to the Galatian churches, which is not just one church, it's a group of about four or five churches, Um, And they were telling these young Christians, these young Gentile Christians, that they had to become Jews first to be be Christians. That the only way they could be justified before God is by taking circumcision and by adhering to the Mosaic Law. That's what these Judaizers were claiming. You see this in um, Galatians 2. 3 and 5 in verses 15 and 16, um, chapter 3, verses 3 and 5, chapter 4, verses 8 through 11, and chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. That is the broad overview of what of the first and central issue in the Galatian church. The second issue Paul addresses in Galatians is his apostolic authority and the pureness and the trueness of the gospel that he preaches. This is the second issue that Paul addresses very quickly in the first verse, or in the first and second chapters, and then moves on to a central issue. But we need to make sure that we pick up on the fact that Paul does have authority. In verses 1, or chapter 1, 11 through 17, he claims that the gospel he heard is not from men. It was from directly from Jesus Christ. These false teachers that came in were claiming that Paul was dependent upon Jerusalem. His message was coming from Jerusalem, and also in that, that he had changed the message a little bit, which he addresses in chapter 2. So that's kind of a broad overview about what's going on um, in the letter to the Galatians. Paul's very busy in this letter. If you've never read straight through this letter, he has a very long argument that he sets up the whole way through the book, and it is one continuous development the whole way through. He's not jumping around. He's not bouncing from one problem, one polemic, as it's called, to another polemic. It is one long polemic on the gospel. Part of this, I believe, is I believe this is part of the reason that, that Paul's tone seems so harsh 
in this letter. If you've ever read through this letter, you notice that the typical thanksgiving and prayer is not in Galatians. Most, if not all, of other of Paul's letters that he writes, he offers a prayer of thanksgiving and a prayer of um, yeah, thanksgiving and greeting to the churches that he writes to. That is not in the book of Galatians. Paul is determined to make sure the gospel is understood, and he is upset and mad with the church that they are swerving from the gospel of Christ. About 15 years after Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians, he writes a letter to a young pastor in Crete named Titus, and we have this letter as well. In giving instructions to Titus on the qualifications of elders, he writes that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The word for rebuke that Paul uses in Titus 1.9 means to admonish someone strongly. It is likely meaning to use argumentation to convince or refute. I believe this is what Paul is doing in Galatians. He is refuting the false teachers and he is giving correction to the Galatian churches. He's writing to address a wrong view, understanding a wrong understanding of the basis of our justification before God, and thus is writing to protect the gospel. So with that as the background, I'm going to pray quick, and then we're going to jump into the first five verses. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to read and to study your word. Father, I pray that you would help us to never take for granted the privilege that we that it is to have the Bible that we now hold in our hands. Father, this morning I ask that you would grant to us the ability to hear and to understand what you are saying to us. And I pray along with the psalmist that you would open our eyes, that we behold wondrous things out of your law, and that you would not hide your commandments from us. In all this we ask in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. If you're not already in Galatians, please turn there. We are going to be looking at the first five verses. Here we go. Paul, an apostle, not through men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God, of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I said that one of the accusations that Paul is fighting against here is where his gospel comes from and his authority to preach the gospel. I think Paul starts with this right here in verse 1 because he needs to first establish his authority to be able to fight against, and I'm going to use that word because it's a, we have to fight for the gospel. He's going to fight against these false teachers. Paul very quickly lets us know that what the teachers are saying about him is not true. Very opening line in the, in the letter is Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man. To be an apostle was someone who carried authority. They were spokesmen for and representatives of someone else. Most commonly in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, the word is used to mean somebody who was a part of an envoy of Jesus Christ, commissioned directly by him or by other apostles. 
Normally, someone who has been taught directly by Jesus and who was invested with the authority to speak on his behalf. So Paul very quickly says that I'm not an apostle from men, but if you read the rest of that verse, he says, but I am an apostle through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now, you may have heard what I just said that it was an envoy of Jesus Christ. But some of you may be thinking, well, Paul never really spent time with Jesus. In fact, if you remember before Paul was Paul, he was Saul, and he spent a great deal of his life coming up through as a Pharisee and then actually persecuting the cross and the Christ of Jesus, persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. I don't believe that Saul ever would have spent one day with Jesus Christ. So how can Paul claim to be an apostle of Jesus Christ? Paul meets the risen Savior on the road to Damascus in Acts 9. And if you read that account, he immediately understands who he, is, who he has come face to face with. Paul gets his gospel from the risen Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And if you look at that again, I, when he says it, Lord, Lord, who are you? He knew it was Jesus Christ. Paul later develops this in chapter 1, but I think it's important to see and understand what it means that Paul is an apostle. Paul has the authority given to him directly from Christ. Part of that, that is part of what it means to be an apostle, to have authority and to speak on Jesus' behalf. This means that when Paul's writing this letter, when Paul's writing all of his other letters, when he wrote the letters that the church now associates with the Bible, Paul wrote letters that are not in our canon of Scripture. Pick that up in 1 Corinthians where he writes a letter that we don't have access to. But he is writing the letter in Scripture with Jesus' authority. It is almost as if Jesus himself penned these letters. Paul's words don't carry any less authority than Jesus' words. And when we read our Bible, it is all the Word of God, which means it is all equally authoritative. In 2 Peter 1, 20-21, Peter writes that, Knowing, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture ever comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Prophecy is not only looking into the future and saying, this is what's going to happen if. Prophecy is declaring a word from the Lord. Be it future events, be it events now, be it whatever it is, that is what prophecy is. So when you read prophecy, don't just think talking about forward thinking or forward looking. If X happens, then Y will necessarily happen. Prophecy is, is declaring the word of the Lord, which is why a lot of the prophets in the Old Testament say, thus says the Lord. Now, in the Old Testament, it is a lot of condemnation of Israel, and it is a lot of proclaiming future judgment if something doesn't happen. But prophecy is, is more than that. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I say all that to say, don't dismiss the truth you read in Scripture just because it isn't written in red letters. Genesis to Revelation fits into that all Scripture is God-breathed. It is literally breathed out by God, is what that means literally in the Greek. So we can't diminish what Paul is writing anywhere, what any of the biblical writers are writing, 
simply because it's not directly from the mouth of Jesus. Moving on, Paul's message is not only authoritative, but it is true. It is the true and only gospel of Jesus Christ. So what does Paul do when the gospel is under attack? He preaches the gospel, which is amazing, because if you're going to defend truth, the only way to defend truth is to preach and proclaim truth. You don't work your way into truth. Truth is just what it is. I heard somebody once say, how do you defend the Bible? You defend the Bible the same way you defend the lion. You let it loose, and it does what it needs to do to defend itself. So that's what Paul does. First Galatians 1, 3-5. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God is the origin of grace and peace. Notice the two very small words that carry this sentence. The word to and the word from. God's grace comes to us from him. We do not go and get it. I think Paul has two meanings in this word grace, and I'll tell you why I think that. Paul wants the Galatians to understand that God's grace comes to us commonality, common grace. We exist, you woke up this morning, you're breathing right now because of the grace of God. His unmerited favor, which is freely disseminated upon humanity as a whole. All of humanity is deserving of death because we have all sinned. We read that in Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of that sin is death. So if we're alive, it's because of God's grace. Not only that, but it is the grace of God through Jesus Christ that we live and move and we have our being, as we read in Acts 17, 28. And it is also because of Christ and the grace of God in him that the whole world holds together, which is Colossians 1, 17. I also believe this is what the psalmist in Psalms 100, verses 4 through 5 is saying when he says we're to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. We're to give thanks to him, we're to bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness is to all generations. That goes beyond us just as believers, but that goes to every person walking on the earth. God's grace gives us life, it sustains us, it allows us to walk on this earth. If you take Romans literally when he says that we are all deserving of death because we have all sinned, that we're alive is only because God does not carry out that judgment on all of humanity right away. But not only is common grace found in God, I believe saving grace is also only found in God. And this is through faith in Jesus Christ. Common grace won't get you saved. All of humanity is, is open to and a benefactor of common grace. But not all of humanity gets saved. If you believe there is a God and you believe that he is sustaining you in the universe, James tells us you do well. But he also says that even the demons believe. Even the demons know who God is. And even the demons know the power and the work of God. But the demons aren't saved. I believe Paul starts with the gospel because he needs to make sure that we all know that saving grace comes only from belief and faith in Jesus Christ. That's the question the Galatians are asking. That's the question that some of us are probably asking this morning. What do I need to do to be saved? How can I be justified before God? 
So Paul starts with the gospel of grace, and he finishes his opening statement with the result of faith in Christ, and that is peace. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. True, lasting peace is only found in God through Jesus Christ. Now notice Paul didn't say happiness. Paul's not wanting us to just be happy. He's not merely saying, hey, you can be happy if you come to Jesus Christ. I believe that's true, but it is not a worldly happiness. It is not the happiness that we think of when our minds go to happy. Jesus warns us that we are going to have tribulations in this world. In fact, he promises it. He says, I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation." As believers, as time marches on, as we get closer and closer and closer to the return of Christ, and we're witnessing this, we're seeing this, our Christian faith is going to be pressed on harder and harder and harder. We have to expect it. Jesus says, they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you because the servant is not greater than his master. Don't think that your Christian life is going to be easy. Don't think that God just wants your happiness. God wants your peace, and that is only found in Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus says, take heart. I have overcome the world. He walked on this road as a human being. He went through the trials that we went through. He goes through the tribulations. He went through the tribulations that we went through. He's conquered death. He's defeated sin. And we can have peace in him and only in him. Paul writes in Philippians 4, he says, Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus is where we are as believers. We have this peace. We have access to this peace. Brandon Heath has a song out called Hands of the Healer. You heard this song? The chorus goes, if we're going to pray about it, there's no use in worrying. But if we're going to worry about it, then why are we praying? I think that sums up what Paul says in Philippians 4. If we have peace in Christ, and I know this is a lot easier to stand up here and say, I know life is not always gumdrops and roses or however that saying goes. Life's not always pleasant. I understand that. But do we believe what we actually say we believe about Jesus? Do we believe that we have peace in Jesus? Do we believe that God has walked through in Jesus, has walked through the trials and the tribulations that we go through? And can we say, yes, this is hard, but Christ has been here. Christ has beat this. I'm in Christ. Therefore, I have peace. Have you, do you experience the peace that surpasses all understanding? Promise, Jesus has promised, God has promised never to leave us nor forsake us. Deuteronomy 31 6. In Matthew 6 25 through 34, Jesus says the same thing that Paul says when he says, we're not to be anxious 
for anything because our Heavenly Father knows what we need. He knows all that we need. Again, in Philippians 4.19, God's, Paul writes that God will supply all of our needs. Your needs. You don't need the latest and greatest iPhone. Trust me. You don't need a big fancy house. You don't need the nicest, newest, shiny car. I don't know where you're at this morning. I know there's some of us that are struggling with relational issues. There are some of us struggling with health issues. There are some of us struggling with I don't know what. Chances are there are some of us here that are looking for peace somewhere other than Christ. You're not going to find it. You may be looking for peace in your retirement. You may be thinking that if I get X amount of dollars in the bank, then I'll be good. If my retirement can just reach this figure, then I'll be satisfied. Then I'll be happy. Then life will be easy and I will be at rest. I will be, I will be at peace. Maybe you're looking for it in a relationship. If only this relationship would be restored. If only this person would meet me where I'm at. If only, if only. If only I were married. If only my wife wasn't this way. If only my husband wasn't this way. If only my kids listened. If you are looking for peace in your life and in your soul, you will never find it apart from Jesus Christ. I guarantee this because the stock market can crash. Because your relationships may not always be reconciled. And I can't answer why. Your kids may not, your kids will not always listen. <laughs> There will always be bigger and better and newer and shinier stuff. And that iPhone you bought a couple weeks ago will be obsolete when the next one comes out. Your computer was obsolete 20 minutes after you bought it. You can't find peace in this world by means of this world. Because the inner conflict that you have is due to a separation between you and God. And this is why Christ came to die. Look at verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins. Christ died for our sins to deliver us from the evil that is within us. The bottom line of the gospel is that Christ died for sin. He died for sin that infects humanity to the core. Low self-esteem is not the fundamental human problem. Your fundamental problem is not that you need to feel better about yourself. Lack of effort in becoming a better person is not your fundamental problem. It is not the fundamental human problem. The universal human condition, the fundamental problem that is at the basis of all the problems in the world, is we are all, by nature, children of wrath, living in sin, and loving it. Jesus says this in John 3.19. This is the judgment, for the light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than light, because their works were evil. People, anthropos, all of humanity, if you remember back to my sermon on the importance of creation, God created men, it's not just the male, it's men, that's what Jesus says in John 3.19, anthropos, all of humanity. This is all of us 
apart from Christ. In Romans 1, 18 through 3.20, Paul lays out this argument for the universal sin in humanity. In Romans 1.18, he says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Again, anthropos. The same word, all of humanity. We are all found apart from Christ in this state of sinfulness. We can do nothing about it in and of ourselves. We love being there. Apart from Christ, that is the truth. So if you are in Christ today, you have been set free from that sinful nature that is inherent in all of us. That's why Paul writes, he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. It wasn't to give us a hand up. It wasn't to just help us climb over that wall that we were somehow trying to get over ourselves. We weren't trying to get over the wall. We were in our sins, bound in our sins. The Bible talks about us being slaves to sin. John 8, 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, we find that we're all dead in trespasses and sins. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh among the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. We were all nature, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is why Christ had to come, because we were stuck in a place that we couldn't get out of and weren't even trying to get out of it. So Christ comes, and he takes on the full penalty of our sin. For God. That's why we've been singing songs this morning about the grace of God and why we are exalting God. We've seen from Scripture that we are all in bondage, in this slavery to sin, because God is holy. He can't simply overlook that sin. He can't just rush away and say it'll be okay. There was a debt that needed to be paid, and Christ came and paid that debt for you. He paid that debt for me. He took the full punishment of your sin so that you and I could be set free from that bondage of sin that we found ourselves in. One commentator put it this way. He said, deliverance is the keynote of this, meaning Galatians, this epistle. The gospel is a rescue, an emancipation from a state of bondage. I think that word emancipation captures this great. We were slaves. The Emancipation Proclamation of this country released slaves. It was illegal to be, held by, to be held in slavery after the emancipation. Christ came to emancipate us, to release us from our bondage to sin. Earlier I said that some of us may be looking for deliverance from the restlessness, from the sin that is within our soul somewhere other than in Jesus Christ, just like the Galatians were, and just like this world is today. We're not going to find it, and God wants it this way. You're not going to find it apart from Christ. And I think that is deliberate on God, God's part. What he says in verse, at the end of verse 4. He came to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Acts 4.12, we read that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
believe the gospel of Jesus Christ is the way that it is. It's the only way that we can come to God and be justified in God's sight because it kills the pride that is in every one of our hearts. No one in heaven will be able to say that I found God on my own, that I came to God because I wanted to. James 4, 6 tells us that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. When we get to a point where we recognize that we are bound in sin and there's nothing we can do about it but fall at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ and plead with him that I need your saving grace in my life to get me away and to get me out of this sin, it is in that moment that we have found redemption, that we have found the peace of God that will surpass all understanding. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Paul says, But for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The grace you need, which is the saving grace for the faith required for the salvation that is only found in Christ, is all a gift from God, so that no one may boast. And in that, God gets all the glory. And that's what Paul says at the end of this opening. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Isaiah 42, 8, Isaiah writes, I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to Carlos. God once deserves and will get all of the glory. Because there is nothing that you or I could do or have done that is deserving of the salvation that you have been given or the possibility of forgiveness that has been offered to you in Christ Jesus. This is the central message of Paul in Galatians, and it is the central message in all of the Bible. Jesus Christ came to die for your sins and for my sins. Salvation is found in no one else. Thank you.